All right. Um, if you are, are new to us today, um, we've been doing something for quite a while now. We have been walking through the book of Acts as a church, and uh, it, it's always interesting when, when a church makes that commitment because there's the temptation to look at everything that happened in Acts and say, boy, if the church of Jesus Christ is really going to work, we need to just be exactly like them. And looking back as we have historically, context, everything, it's not possible to exactly replicate what happened during this time. Um, and a large part of that is just the culture has changed, uh, times have changed, but there, there are deep burning principles and practices of the first church. And but we, we all look at the first church in Acts and we realize this is a group of people, they are on fire for God. And it's not just they're, they're full of enthusiasm, but with their lives, as we sung earlier, there's such a life commitment. Everything this church does, this group of believers, it, it is an act of worship with their lives to the Lord. And the effects, uh, what happens in the book of Acts, it's just astounding. Um, I, I know I'm astounded, so at least, you know, I'm impressed. Today we're going to do something a little different, though. Um, we are going to take a look at everything that we've talked about so far in the book of Acts, and that's chapters 1 through 9, we are going to look at all of that through the lens of one very familiar Old Testament verse, okay? How familiar is it to this body? Well, it is 2 Chronicles 7.14. You know it well. If KPC has a life verse, y'all, this is it, okay? I'm going to read it to you. Uh, this is God speaking to His people, uh, and He says, if my people who are called by my name, if they will humble themselves and pray. And we could say, well, Lord, could you define that for us? He does. If they will humble themselves and pray, meaning seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. Let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we love you today, God. We, we've sung that. We've said that, Lord. We pray that now. We love you. Father, we recognize today that you are sovereign, that, Lord, you rule over all things. And, Father, your rule is one that is marked with goodness, love, mercy, forgiveness. And, Lord, it, it's also a partnership that you've put into place. God, you have called us not to sit on the sidelines and watch what you do or to have a, a church service and then wait until next week. Lord, you've called us to be an army, a family, to be ministers, apostles. Lord, to, to, to go out and to bring good news. And so today, we just thank you for that call in our lives. But Lord, we also thank you for the primacy and the power of prayer. That, Lord, something that, that the world would look at from the outside and say, well, that's wishful thinking. Those are, are folks just hoping out loud. Father, there is power in prayer, and we thank you, Lord God, for your movement, and that you have called us to be a part of something very great that you begun a long time ago that is still in effect today. So we bless you, we thank you, and we just commit our ears, our hearts, our whole lives to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, I, I, want, to, uh, I want to bring a radical idea to you this morning. Um, I want you to consider... Um, a radical concept, and it's that when we pull back for a wider view of Acts 1 through 9, okay, so when, when we get out of the chapter and we pull up for a much wider view of these nine chapters, 
that everything that has unfolded so far in the book of Acts, it's all simply 2 Chronicles 7.14 in motion. Now, I, I don't want you to misunderstand me, okay? Please understand that what we read here, all of this is God in motion, okay? It is all God at work. In other words, God is the instigator. God is the cause of everything that is happening, okay? In these first nine chapters, this is God building His kingdom. Um, the love, the mercy, and the salvation that we encounter here, th this, this is the grace, the mercy, and the salvation of His Son, Jesus Christ, who is God. That's what people are experiencing. And we, when we watch this church move through these nine chapters, it is the power of God's Holy Spirit that's moving this church, that's empowering them. We've got to know that. And yet at the same time, at the same time, there is a huge cause and effect going on here in Acts. There really is. God has called His people to play a part in what happens in the book of Acts, okay? And with where I'm going, I can go ahead and change that word play to pray. God has called His people to pray a part in the book of Acts, and then God moves in mighty ways. I mean, look back at how this, this book started. Do you remember way back when we started Acts? Chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Okay, so before we're anywhere in this chapter, verses 4 and 5, Jesus speaks to His followers, okay? He speaks to His apostles, this first little, this little group of believers, and He tells them to do something. He tells them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for something tremendous that God's going to do in just a few days. And, and we talked about this at the very beginning, that when God says wait, he, he, He's not telling the church to just kind of hang out, you know, like we do in a doctor's room, or like I joked a few weeks ago, like at the, the, the DMV, you know, watching the clock, okay, Lord, when will you move? But when God tells His people to wait, He's asking them to wait in prayer, He's saying, get into conversation with God, listen to God, devote yourselves to God, wait in prayer, and God will move. And, and the promise that He makes is that in just a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You will be filled with the Holy Spirit. But there's a reason for the Holy Spirit filling these early believers, and it's not just so they feel really, really good about themselves. You know, it's not just that they get really, really excited in worship. That is not the goal of being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's that the church has a mission that, that is soon about to be launched. It's the great commission of Jesus Christ. They need to be empowered. They're going to bring the, the news, the very, very good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior, the Redeemer. They're going to bring that news out to a lost world. So we've got to notice this 2 Chronicles 7.14 promise. If you will pray, church, if you will pray, I will hear, I will forgive, I will heal your land. Now, what's really wonderful about all of this in the very beginning is that we can't speculate about what would have happened if the first church had not obeyed God. Well, why? Because they did obey Him. They did obey, and they did exactly what Jesus said in verses 13 and 14. This little band of believers, they go up into the upper room, right? It's good that you go up to an upper room, and that's the only direction. So they go into the upper room, and they devote themselves to prayer. And what unfolds in the book of Acts 
is not just Pentecost, it's a whole lot more than that. And I'm going to walk you through it. It's everything we've looked at so far. This is what unfolds because His people pray. All right, first of all, you have Pentecost in, in Acts chapter 2 at the very beginning. But right after Pentecost, in Acts 2, 14 through 36, the disciples, having the mind of God, having prayed, being led by the Holy Spirit, right after Pentecost, as this huge crowd gathers, wondering what in the world is going on here spiritually and physically around us, the disciple or the apostles know exactly when to address this crowd, and they know exactly what to say. And what Peter gives, listen, I know Peter didn't go to seminary, okay? The sermon he gives is a masterpiece of redemptive history and salvation. It's also very precise, and this is what God is doing right now here among you. And the result of that, thousands are saved. Thousands come to know Jesus Christ in that moment. The world begins to change radically right there. If that weren't enough, in verses 42 through 47, the apostles also have the wisdom of God to form or to structure the community of faith in a way that it thrives. And we read in those verses, you know, they devote themselves to prayer, to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship. They know exactly what to do. We move on to Acts chapter 3. Peter and John, right, on their way to the temple. What do they see? A lame beggar reaching out. He's asking for money. This happens every day. There's nothing unusual about it. But because they have prayed, they recognize in that moment that this isn't a normal moment. This is a God moment. This is a healing moment. And so they step forward. They pray for this lame beggar. Next thing you know, he's healed. He's walking around. And something like that, you know, you don't sit on the sidelines and just say, isn't that neat? What happens? Again, a crowd forms. They've seen this man their whole life. Look at him. He's up. He's walking around. They gather. And so Peter steps in, and once again, he seizes this moment, and he shares Christ's salvation with a stunned crowd. Again, God is glorified. Again, something so much bigger than what we can pull off at our own strength, it happens. Now, that has a consequence, right? The consequence, as we read on, is, is negative in chapter 4. They are arrested. They're taken before a hostile crowd. You know, Hunger Games fans, the odds are not in Peter's favor here. The, the, the apostles are in trouble. But what are they given in that moment? They are given from God the words to say. And they're words of challenge. They're, they're, they're not words of concession. And, you know, this is not a passive speech. They come on strong. They speak the truth. And miraculously, and it is a miracle, they are released. We go into Acts chapter 5, 1 through 10. Something happens in the church. We talked about this. Ananias and Sapphira, the enemy slithers into the midst of this fellowship. Suddenly, we've got deceit in the church. And deceit is hard to spot, but the apostles, they see it. They spot it. They partner with God, and they deal with the situation. And what happens? God cleanses His church. In Acts chapter 5, verses 11 through 16, God goes on to use the apostles then to heal many who are physically sick. Again, it's an absolute miracle. But the bigger effect of that moment is that more people are drawn into the kingdom of God. Again, God is doing something amazing here. 
They're arrested again in this chapter, you know. They were just arrested in the last chapter. They're arrested again. But this time God delivers them, and it's an absolute miracle. They're delivered by an angel of the Lord. We go on to Acts chapter 6, 1 through 7. Suddenly, there's a big need in the church. There's more ministry than the apostles can possibly do on their own. God gives them the wisdom. Again, they partner with the Lord. They form a a brand new branch of leadership. No one's ever heard of a deacon. They form the diaconate. The ministry arm of the church expands. And then we get to Acts 6, uh, 6, 8 through Acts 7, which is a very sad chapter for us. Because Stephen, a man of God, one of the very first deacons, who's doing amazing things for God, well, he's taken, and he's martyred. He is the first one to die in the church as a martyr for God. But even in the last moments of his life, he delivers a message. And listen, if you're a preacher, this is one of those messages, man, if i got to go out in a blaze of glory, that's the message you want to preach. And even though we don't see immediate effects from that sermon, the long term of Stephen's message, wow, God God works powerfully through that. Then we get to Acts chapter 8. The church is is being persecuted. You know, they, they really are on the run for their lives. And we get a snapshot of one individual, this guy Philip. And y'all, Philip is running with the rest of them. But as Philip flees Jerusalem, what does he do? He shares Jesus Christ everywhere he goes. He goes to Samaria. Man, there's nowhere darker than Samaria, right? And I mean, in, 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 in the book of Acts, just a dark place. But he goes, he proclaims Jesus Christ to to a town, a whole town of people that is under the spell of a cult leader slash witch doctor. The whole town comes to Jesus. Even the witch doctor, you know, he's confessing Christ. It's incredible. Philip goes on from there. He shares Christ with just one man. But it's so strategic, this one man that he shares Jesus Christ with. He comes to faith. He comes alive. He becomes a child of God, and he takes the gospel back to Ethiopia. And then we saw last week in Acts chapter 9, Jesus steps in, and he radically saves Saul, who is the fiercest opponent of the church. Why did I go through all of that? To make the point, all of this follows on the heels of prayer. All of this follows God's people praying. But understand this, it's not just one moment of prayer that caused all of this, okay? In other words, the upper room is not the only time that the first church ever prayed. Listen to this, it's the opposite. What we see, and and I'll go through these real quick, is we find the first church praying continually in the book of Acts. I'll read a few of these to you. The first one is the upper room. Acts 1.14, They all joined together constantly in prayer, constantly in prayer, um, uh, along with the women, Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Acts 2.42, I referred to it a minute ago. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, one another, right? The breaking of bread, and to prayer. Acts 3.1, Peter and John went up to the temple at the time of prayer. Acts 4.24, they raise their voices together in prayer to God. Acts 4.31, after they did that, they prayed. Acts 6.4, the apostles 
say, we will give our attention now to prayer and to ministry of the word. And then Acts 15, when they arrived, and this is the town in Samaria, they prayed for the new believers. The point, the point is this. When it came to prayer in the first church, prayer was not a spiritual now and then. You know, it wasn't something they turned on, turned off. It, it wasn't only in a moment of crisis or a moment of great need. Prayer was a regular part of the first church's spiritual life. And folks, out of prayer, God did tremendous things. What did God do? You know, he made himself known to them. He made himself known to the world. God, God moved in the midst of their culture. God changed their culture. God set up his kingdom right in the midst of their culture. And so as we call these things to mind, we, we, we remember all that happened. We look at Acts. We've got to remember 2 Chronicles 7, 14. God's people did their part. They prayed their part, and folks, God did his part. They humbled themselves as a, pray, as a people. They, they repentantly prayed to God, and God made himself known through them. God changed their world. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? That is Acts chapter 1 through 9 in a nutshell. So, let's fast forward, okay? Let's fast forward to 2016 to our life and times. We look around as American citizens, right, as, as Virginians, even if we're replanted Virginians, right? So, we look around, and, and all around us we see headlines. You know, we see headlines, uh, national headlines, regional headlines, local headlines. A lot of what we read today, most of what we read today, even on the Weather Channel, we get disturbing headlines. There is a lot that is troubling in our headlines. We look to financial markets, right? The financial markets today, y'all, they are enough to rattle anybody. And I could go on and on and on about what we see, what we experience every day of our lives, but y'all would be making the same point. Our world is unstable. We, as the church of Jesus Christ, children of God, we can't look to our world for hope. We, we, we cannot put our trust in our world. In other words, what I'm saying is this, the world today is very much like the world 2,000 years ago. Not a whole lot has changed when it's come to the world. Sin, sin is a part of our world. It is dark. The world has not changed much. But I'll tell you something else that hasn't changed much at all. It's God. He's the same today, yesterday, and forever. All of the love, all the power, the mercy, the forgiveness, the, the healing of our land, nothing has changed there. So with our world the same and with our God the same, I want to remind you of something else that is the same. Folks, it is our call from God to pray. It is that we are a people that today in 2016 are saying yes to His invitation. That if-then clause, if you will pray, watch me move. Second Chronicles 7.14 to be a people that says yes to that. So I want you to hold on to that this morning. I want to say one more thing. It is very vital in these days that we know who we are, okay? We are members of a local church, right? Kempsville Presbyterian Church, whether we're a longtime member or a regular tender, we're a part of this body, Everything we've read in 2 Chronicles 7.14, we've looked at in Acts, it applies to this place. 
Be in prayer for your church, all right? But we are not just members of KPC. We are members of the church worldwide. We need to be praying for the church everywhere that it meets all over the world. I'll tell you something else that we are members of, and I've been, been gently reminding you about this during an election year. We are members of a great nation. We are members of a great nation, the United States of America. And I think sometimes as Christians, we say, you know, well, well what do we do? You know, we pray over the elections. We kind of pray in general. Is, is there a way that we could be more involved? How can we, the church of Jesus Christ, play a role in what's happened nationally? Well, today I've got a special guest for you. And uh, he is going to share uh, a little bit from a national perspective, what God is doing nationally. That question I just asked, what can we do as a church? He's going to share with us a little bit about that today. And I want you to know this before I invite him up. This is a divine appointment. Um, Someone in the church, uh, just a a great brother who will remain nameless, Jerry Rex, um, (laughs) he took me to lunch the other day and he said, Steve, I want you to see something. He gave me a little thumb drive video. And, and, you know, I get a lot of those. I get a lot of books. Thank you for all of those. I, I, don't, I typically don't have time to read all of them or watch all the videos. But I, I told Jerry, I said, you know, I'm going to watch this, Jerry. I'm going to go back. Right now, I'm going to watch this. When I watched this, my heart was just moved. I was so encouraged as a Christian and an American. And uh, I said, you know, what? I'm going to play it this way. I'm going to play this f- for our people. And as, as I was doing this, another member of our church, Hunter, came up to me and he said, hey, so-and-so is going to come and visit us today. And I said, this has got to be a divine appointment. I was going to show this today, and he's going to come to encourage us. So instead of the video, you're going to hear from him today. And I'll just say this. I am proud to say that this guest is not only a Virginia congressman, he is a dear brother in Christ. He serves the Lord in government. And he even has a bit of a history with us. Uh, he and his wife used to attend here a while back, but he's, been, he's joined together with Bruce in what Bruce Anderson's done in Belarus, and I could go on and on, but I'm now going to uh, introduce to you. Please welcome, if you will, our dear brother in Christ and a congressman, Randy Forbes. Randy, would you come on up, brother? Thank you all. Thank you. Well, Steve, thank you so much, and I just thank you for your ministry and what you and Jane do, and Shirley and I were so happy to be able to come here today. I could spend time just going through this church, as Steve mentioned, and the great ministry it's had in our area, but also to us. Uh, I got to see Frances Truett when I came in. I don't know where she is. She was somewhere over there. Uh, Frances and Bob were such, played such a role in my life early on, and uh, Steve mentioned um, Jerry Rex, uh, one of the true blessings in my life was when the Lord put Jerry and Judy in my life early on. And Jerry actually got Shirley and I when we were uh, just had not been married too long. We had two children at that time, but we attended here for uh, a long period of time, and we would always sit in the back row, not because we were backbenchers, but because our baby, we were afraid the baby would start crying and we would have to, to, to leave. But we were always so blessed, and this morning what I wanted to do is two things. The first thing I'd love to do is to take what Steve has been talking about. You know, Chronicles was written hundreds of years before Acts, and Acts was written hundreds of years before today, and I'd like to pull them all together and put some legs on them for today. The second thing I would love to do for you is give you three things. Encouragement, 
inspiration, and a smattering of conviction. And if you package that right, we get to walk away with hope. Because I'll tell you what the Christian world needs today is hope. Because if you are like me, when you look at television or you look at world events, as Steve said, we sometimes get overwhelmed because let me tell you what we see. We see Christians literally being brutally killed around the globe for one reason, because they're Christians, like we haven't seen in centuries before. And, you know, then oftentimes I hear Christians say, somehow or the other, I just feel like the country's slipping through my fingers because what we used to call good, we call bad, and what we used to call bad, we call good, and I don't know how to stop it. And here at home we see God coming off of our walls and being pulled out of our schools and pulled out of our history books because of this term we use called political correctness, and there's nothing correct about it at all. It's political coercion that is causing that to happen. And, you know, one of the things that I saw, we have a visitor center in the United States Capitol. It's part of the Capitol. $621 million of your money that went to build this visitor center. When they would first let us walk in that visitor center, first time, I was the first, one of the first members of Congress to go in there because I wanted to see what they were putting in there. They would not even put our national motto, In God We Trust, in the new visitor center. In fact, in the big atrium that you'd walk in there, it said in stone, our national motto, e pluribus unum. And they wouldn't put in God we trust in there. They would not put the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag in there because it referenced God. They wouldn't put the Declaration of Independence in there because it referenced the Creator. In fact, when they did a mock-up of the House floor, any of you have seen the House floor, knowing God we trust is behind there, the snapshot that they used cropped that off. And when they did a mock-up, they took in God we trust off and just put stars across there. I watched as a principal and an athletic director in Pensacola, Florida, one who had served that school system for 30 years, another 40 years, and the principal made this great travesty. He looked at a luncheon off school property with no kids even involved. He looked to the athletic director and he asked the athletic director to offer a prayer. It was a routine thing that he just said, will you bless the food before we eat, 16 seconds long. He was hauled into federal court threatened to be put in jail for six months, a $5,000 fine, and to take away his retirement. I watched as the architect of the Capitol. For years, we could fly flags over the Capitol, and we could put whatever we wanted on them. I had a member of Congress that came to me and said, Randy, I've got a young Boy Scout. He wanted to put on the flag certificate this, to my grandfather, who taught me to love my God, uh, my country, and my family, and the architect of the Capitol said he couldn't do it. In fact, when I went to the architect of the Capitol, he said you can't even put the Pledge of Allegiance on a flag certificate anymore because it references God. I, went to, I watched a young boy at the Air Force Academy. You know what he did wrong? He wrote one Bible verse on a whiteboard outside of his dorm room, and the United States Air Force took him to task and literally wrote this. It is against the leadership principles of the United States Air Force to put a Bible verse on the whiteboard outside of your dormitory. And then I watched a young football coach, Joe Kennedy. He served in the Marines for 20 years, fighting for freedom for people around the globe, fighting for our freedom. He was a good football coach. Everybody acknowledged that. You know what his big sin was? After a football game, he walked on the field knelt down and he prayed thanking God for protecting his players and the players on the other team and he was fired. And you know, you look around sometime and you are, I'm no different than you are. 
I start asking, well, what can one person do? And I'm kind of nerdy sometimes, and I go through and read these old prayers that were offered up in the House and the Senate for years and years and years. And I think, what happens when we rip all those out of our history books? What happened if they'd never been offered? And I read something that one of our Senate chaplains had wrote. He served between 1903 and 1909, and this is what he said. He said, I am only one, but I am one. I can't do everything, but I can do something. And I'm not going to let the fact that I can't do everything stop me from doing something. And I looked around, and in Congress, we have caucuses on everything. I mean, we've got a caucus on the Navy. We've got caucuses on boating. We've got caucuses on everything. But in the history of the United States Congress, they had never had a caucus on faith or to protect faith. I guess they never felt they needed it. So I went into my staff and I said, we're going to create the Congressional Prayer Caucus to defend and protect faith around America. Now, they did not do what you just did. They told me and pleaded with me, do not do that. You cannot get in this fight. If you get in this fight, they will attack you and they will destroy you and the liberal editorial board writers will come at you with everything they can across the country. They used the word please. They said, please do not get in this fight. And I said, file the papers for the caucus. And about a week later, I believe we had every lawyer in the House administration office that was in my office. It was about 10 of them. And the lead lawyer came in there and he said, Congressman, we'd just like to ask you this. How flexible are you in this? And I said, I'm very flexible. I said, what do you want me to do? And he said, we would like for you to consider changing the name. I said, no problem. I said, do you not like the word congressional? And they, no, no, it's true. And they said, they said no, 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 congressional's okay. I said, do you not like the word caucus? And they said, no, no, caucus is okay. And I said, well, what is it you'd like for me to change? And he said, well, we'd wonder if you would consider changing the word prayer to spirituality. And I had a young staffer there. She's now my chief of staff in Washington. She was very young at that time, so over 10 years ago. And staffers are supposed to just sit there. And she stood up, and she wasn't even real committed to these issues then. She is now. She stood up and said, he would never do that. And they all just looked at her, and I looked at them, and I said, she's young, but she's right. I would never do that. And I still remember the chief attorney looking at me, and he said, well, what precedent is there for this? And on my wall, I had a picture my Sunday school class had given me of the first prayer in Congress. And I looked at that, and I told him, what about that? And you know what he did? He looked at the lawyers on his right and the lawyers on his left, and he said, I think that'll do. And he signed off and established the first ever caucus on faith in the United States of America. Now, I wished I tell, could tell you we had a plan and I knew what I was going to do. I didn't, but I knew this verse that Steve preached on today. And so I went to a number of members of Congress 
And I, and I got this room right off the house floor. It's called room 219. It's the closest room to the house floor. And I asked some members of Congress to join me. Some of them said no. Some of them said we will. Some of them said we'll think about it. Let me just tell you, nobody showed up. And for six months, I'd go in there by myself, and I would pray at the beginning of each week when we went into session that God would heal our land and that he would uh, give us wisdom on how to govern this country. And then all of a sudden, I had one guy that joined me periodically. And one day, I literally prayed, God, if you don't want me to do this, would you please release me from this? Because it's kind of embarrassing. Coming here week after week after week by myself. And I know that it's hard to believe this, but I literally got up to leave, and 10 members of Congress were at the door. And they all said this. They said, we've been planning to come. We just never got around to doing it. Today, if you walk into room 219, many nights it is standing room only of members of Democrats, Republicans, and Independents getting down on their knees, asking God to bless our land and heal the country. But in addition to that, there are now 8,000 Room 219 groups across America, praying every week that God would heal our land. The other thing, though, I realized was this. It's not just going down on our knees. It's getting up and taking a stand that's sometimes important. And I looked at this verse. There's a verse in Judges in chapter 9, and it said this. It said, the trees went out for a leader, and they went to the olive tree, and they asked the olive tree to be their leader. And the olive tree said, nope, I'm doing some great things. I can't do that. Why would I want to give all this up to come be the leader of a bunch of trees? So they went to the fig tree, and the fig tree said, nope, I'm doing all this wonderful stuff. People love my fruit. Why would I give that up and come be the leader of a bunch of trees? And so then they went to the vine. The vine said the same thing. Too busy. I'm doing all this stuff with great fruit. Why would I give all this up to come be the leader of a bunch of trees? So then they went to the bramble bush, the briar bush, and the briar bush said, not only will I be your leader, but if you don't do everything I tell you to, if you don't come under my shade, I'll burn down the cedars of Lebanon, I'll burn down everything you believe in and everything you stand for. That's really the first parable in the Bible. And the moral of that kind of is this, sometimes God comes to us and says to stand up for something. Steve, you need to preach about this. Some of you, you need to do this, you need to do that. And sometimes we just say, too busy, I've got all this stuff, why would I give it up to go do this? But there's a part of that parable that wasn't written that's equally important. What would have happened if the olive tree or the fig tree or the vine had come to be the leader and the first time the anti-tree people attacked them, what would the other trees have done? Would they have said, oh no, We've got two bigger roots. We can't leave and come help the olive tree or the fig tree or the vine. And here's what I watched. All those stories that I just told you are happening around the world. You know, we expect the world to do that. What breaks my heart is that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of Christians who do nothing. And when I looked at that, I realized part of what we had to do is that Congressional Prayer Caucus is stand up and do something to support the people that were standing up. So the first thing we did is we went to that visitor center, and I stayed on the floor 10 hours. 
and I told them, when you try to pass the bill to open the visitor center, I'm bringing the Congressional Prayer Caucus members on this floor. We will stay all night if we have to, and you're going to have to explain to the American people why you won't put in God We Trust up in their visitor center. At 10.20, they finally came over and said, what do you want? And I said, I want you, I want you to rip the part off the wall that says our national motto is e pluribus unum. And they said, you mean pull it out of the stone? I said, yep, because it's a lie. And then I said, I want you to put in God we trust up in stone so that you can't take it out when I'm gone. I want you to put the, the Pledge of Allegiance up in stone. And today, when you walk in the United States Visitor Center, the first thing you see is our national motto, in God we trust. 15,000 people a day walk under it and see it. The Pledge of Allegiance is back up in there. We went to the architect of the Capitol. He refused to move. We launched an effort around the country. You know, with just me, it was only one voice. But now we have 100 members of the Congressional Prayer Caucus. And with 100 voices in there, we had 2.5 million emails that came into Washington. Today, God's back on the flag certificates. You know that you have. We realized, though, that getting in God we trust wasn't enough to just get it in one building. So we decided we'd put it up in offices. Today, there are 100 offices, including the speaker, the minority leader, who have in God we trust up in their offices. But by July of this year, we will have gotten one million in God we trust up around the country, putting them back up in here. You know that principal and the athletic director, their lawyer called me on Monday and said, Randy, they're going to send these guys to jail. So that judge, all she's listening to is the liberal editorial board writers. I said, we can give her something else to read. And so I wrote a letter. We had 65 members of Congress sign it. On Thursday night, she dismissed the case against that principal and athletic director. And that young cadet in the Air Force, the Air Force finally came to us and said, rewrite these protocols. And we rewrote them. The last four challenges from the Air Force on faith, the Air Force has said, nope, they have the right to do this because we've changed the protocols and they can, and they can do it. And so here's what I want to leave you with today. Which one are you? Are you the olive tree, fig tree, vine tree? Or are you one of the trees that need to come along and support them? But if you're a Christian, you're one of the two, and you have to make that decision. And the third thing I want to leave you, or second thing I want to leave you with is this. We can't do everything, but every one of us in this room can do something. And if we'll do the something God puts on our heart, then I promise you, God is the everything, and He can do everything if we will just trust Him.